I'm Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, June 19, 2018. Coming up, an interview with Dr. Lee No, whose recent book describes growing understanding and appreciation of the role of mitochondria in health and disease. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. In Boulder, we're very protective of our honeybees, recognizing their value as pollinators. But in other parts of the world, honeybees are feared and avoided. The so-called killer bees, which resulted from a breeding cross between the familiar European honeybee and an African strain, spread from their origin in Brazil in the 1950s into the southern U.S. These Africanized bees are much more aggressive than their American and European counterparts. Their stings have killed thousands of people. Just what makes these bees into killers? Scientists in Brazil used a simple technique to separate hives into two groups of bees. They swung a leather ball in front of an Africanized hive and collected the bees who stung the ball. They also took bees that did not attack the ball from the same hive. Brains were dissected from all the bees. The biochemical analysis showed that in the brains of aggressive bees, there were high levels of two proteins that interacted to produce compounds that caused the attack behavior. When the researchers injected these so-called neuropeptides into less aggressive bees, they too became aggressive. These compounds have also been shown to cause aggressive behavior in fruit flies and mice. The researchers believe the compounds stimulate nerve cells that coordinate the stinging attack. These studies may lead to a way to protect people from killer bees. Amazingly, these findings might also provide insights into how neurochemistry can influence aggressive behavior in people. This work was published last week in the Journal of Proteome Research. Bird lovers may be familiar with the work of David Leatherman, who writes a column called The Hungry Bird in the Journal of the Colorado Field Ornithologists. If you're curious about what birds eat, well, visit the Henderson Museum on the CU Boulder campus to see his high-resolution digital photos of the insects and plants our local birds are eating. The exhibit runs through December 1st, 2018 in the Bio Lounge. See the museum website for hours and directions. Another example of the important role neuropeptides play in our behaviour comes from a study of eating. Feeding behavior is known to be controlled by neuropeptide hormones, which can either be released into the blood or travel through neurons to related brain regions. Scientists studying control of eating noted that receptors for those neuropeptides were found in brain regions that had no direct connection to the neurons that actually synthesized the peptide. They thought that cerebrospinal fluid, or CSF, which is typically thought to provide just mechanical protection for the brain, might be the key to transport for these neuropeptides. One of the neuropeptides that regulates feeding behavior is called MCH. The researchers found that about a third of the neurons that make MCH connect directly to the CSF, or the cerebrospinal fluid. They selectively activated these MCH-producing neurons that project to the CSF, and this increased the amount of MCH in that fluid. 
it also caused the rats to eat more food. Then they used an antibody that grabbed onto the MCH in the cerebral spinal fluid, which prevented it from activating its receptors. Rats that were given the antibody ate less food. This study, which was published last week in the journal Cell Metabolism, illustrates a novel mechanism for the brain to send out signals. I'm guessing the diet industry might be interested. Just a small town girl Living in a lonely world She took the midnight train going In his recent book, Mitochondria and the Future of Medicine, naturopathic Dr. Lino tells the amazing story of mitochondria. These minute organelles, without which none of us could survive, convert our food energy into the cellular currency of ATP. By understanding how our mitochondria work, we can live healthier and longer lives. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lino. And I was excited to read your book on mitochondria because it seems like after many years of relative obscurity, people are finally realizing how important these little structures are in the cell. So can you start off by explaining exactly what they are, as far as we know anyways, and what they do for us? Sure, yes. And first of all, thank you for having me on your show, Beth. Of course. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, but but I, I agree, of course, I might be a little bit biased because I, I wrote the book, but it is a Christian, <laughs> an incredibly fascinating topic. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of people still remember mitochondria as how we were taught in, in high school, which is still absolutely true. They are the powerhouse of the cell. They, they are responsible for producing over 90% of the cellular energy that we have. But the, the implications to health and medicine go far beyond that. Uh, and that's one of the things that we're starting to realize is that these powerhouses essentially make life happen. And that's because everything that happens in a cell requires an input of energy. So we just really need to make sure that mitochondria are functioning properly. And that allows all the chemical processes, everything that happens in the cell to run optimally. When that doesn't happen, that's when things start to fall apart. So the basis for cellular energy, at least the primary basis, is this molecule called ATP. And the mitochondria are great at producing that. But like you said, that's not all that they do. And this has recently been coming out more. And so I want to come back to the ATP production because that's really important in terms of free radical production and the resulting damage, many types of damage that can occur to the cell. But let's just take a little tangent and talk about some of the other um, roles that mitochondria play in the cell, like in terms of signaling the cell as to what's going on in the internal environment. Right. And so this is, this is a, a really fascinating area because one of the things that we're starting to realize is that the mitochondria not only act as uh, um, a component of this uh, cell that sends signals, but also receives signals and, uh, you know, put those signals into context to make decisions for the cell. And one of those uh, important decisions that uh, the mitochondria was responsible for is something called cellular suicide or apoptosis. And what we're starting to realize is that when mitochondria are dysfunctional and they cannot take those different signals, understand what those signals mean, and carry out the next steps, that's when 
defective cells are allowed to survive, and that is essentially the, the start of, of, of cancer. At the same time, there are a lot of free radicals that are generated with inside the mitochondria. And in fact, uh, it's now known that the mitochondria is the primary source of endogenous free radicals or those free radicals that are produced within the body. And those, even though, you know, we've in the past seen free radicals as a negative thing, the newer research is actually showing that under con controlled situations, free radicals are incredibly beneficial. Uh, and that's the job of the mitochondria is to understand are these free radicals damaging to the cell or are these free radicals important signaling molecules? And these are all the different roles that uh, the, the mitochondria have in the cell. It's kind of that old adage, a little can be a good thing, but a lot can be a bad thing, huh? Absolutely. Yes, that's right. It's all about balance. You know, too much or too little of anything is, is not good. Right. And a healthy mitochondria will attain that balance. So let's back up. How do they generate these free radicals? What's going on in the mitochondria that produces right, so these? This, yeah, so, so this uh, relates back to the way we produce energy and, uh, you know, uh, something called oxidative phosphorylation, which is a, a scary term for a lot of people, but uh, it's not, it, it, we can summarize it by, by saying that the way mitochondria generate energy or the vast bulk of energy in the, in the cell is to, to pass electrons from one complex of uh, the electron transport chain to the next. And you can think of this as, uh, as um, a, line, uh, a line of uh, subway stops where, you know, one subway will enter a station and then that goes to the next station. And if, in order for the next train to arrive, the, the previous train has to leave. And that's exactly the way electrons go from one complex to the next. And the, and as long as that's happening, everything's, everything's cool. But in certain circumstances, that one train will not leave on time. And if the next train tries to enter the station, there's going to be a collision. And at the level of the mitochondria, what that essentially means is that there's, you know, uh, an electron doesn't get passed on fast enough, and another one tries to come in. And unfortunately, that electron will have nowhere else to go but to spill out. And that's where the free radicals are generated. In, in this particular situation, those free radicals can then go on to damage uh, the DNA that's found within the mitochondria, and, and, uh, and the whole process starts to unravel. And for those listeners that are not familiar with the term electron, this is a little piece of an atom that contains energy. And when it comes into the mitochondria, it's at kind of a high energy level. Think of it as like a big currency bill, like a $100 bill. And as it goes through the electron transport chain, it gets broken down into smaller and smaller currencies or lower and lower energy levels until it gets to the end of the chain and then the mitochondria gets rid of it. But what's happening along the, the course of the chain, like with these subway um, train stations overlapping, is that sometimes there can be a backup or a collision, and those intermediate energy electrons get knocked out of the transport system, and they have to go somewhere. And a lot of molecules will suck them up, and they can be damaged in the process. And that's those damage, or those molecules that have picked up the electrons are what we call free radicals. Yes, and that's an amazing way to explain it. I, I, I haven't heard that analogy before, but uh, I'm going to start using that oh, one. Oh, great. Thanks. Yeah, I taught college freshmen for a long time, came up with a lot of sort of um, <laughs> obvious types of analogies to help get these concepts across. So we've Excellent. got these electrons, and they can get away and produce these free radicals. And um, can you talk about what kinds of damage the free radicals can do to a cell? 
Right. So uh, when we're talking at the level of the mitochondria, uh, and as I mentioned, this is where the bulk of endogenous free radicals are generated, uh, it spills into the matrix of the mitochondria. So the matrix is the innermost part of the, the mitochondria, and this is where the mitochondrial DNA uh, resides. So uh, I think a lot of people are also surprised to hear that the mitochondria contain their own set of DNA, and this is because, if, uh, and, and I mentioned this in my book, where um, uh, mitochondria from an evolutionary perspective, used to be bacteria, and over you know the last two billion years of evolution has been able to retain a set of their own genes, and uh, this is as I mentioned, this resides in the in the matrix of the mitochondria. And uh, the the thing is is that these the DNA is is relatively unprotected and easily damaged. So when these free radicals are generated in the immediate proximity of that sensitive DNA and goes in and damages DNA, what that essentially means is that the proteins that the DNA codes for can no longer be produced. And why that's so important is that the complexes of the electron transport chain, so these are the complexes that make energy in our body. Uh, without these complexes, we cannot produce the, the energy that our cells need. And, and I, as I mentioned, everything starts to fall apart. So the DNA in the mitochondria is incredibly important, and we really need it to be uh, in good shape and functioning well. Um, otherwise, it's just we're going to have what we call an energetic deficiency. Right. And these mitochondrial DNA mutations, like most other mutations, are almost inevitably bad. I mean, when you when you take something that's complicated, like I always think of it as like my car engine. You know, if I open the hood and and the engine is running and belts are turning and the motor is, is on, if I threw a wrench in there, it probably wouldn't make the engine run better. So you get these, no, yeah. these mutations in the DNA and they're not going to make things better. So then over time, like this happens to all of us as we get older, older time, over time, we accumulate these mitochondria that aren't working quite so well. But we do have some processes in our cells that will help get rid of those damaged mitochondria. Can you explain some of that? I think that's just a remarkable process. Right. So what's interesting is that we have um, a few copies of DNA uh, per, per mitochondria. So in some cases, uh, what we've seen is that uh, mitochondria can use one set of DNA as a template to repair um, the, the damaged mitochondria. The other thing to, to note is that mitochondria are constantly in flux. They divide and they join together. So what happens is that uh, in, when mitochondria d- divide, there's a potential that the damaged set of DNA it, it gets segmented or segregated into uh, one, um, one mitochondria, uh, daughter mitochondria. And in that situation, what might actually happen, and this is a beneficial thing, is that uh, we go through a, a process where that mitochondria is destroyed. It's no longer functioning at an optimal level because it uh, because it has all this defective DNA, and so it, uh, it it's essentially removed from the cell and along with it the damaged mito- uh, uh, mitochondrial DNA. So we do have uh, not just repair mechanisms in, in place, but we also have ways to get rid of damaged mitochondria uh, mitochondrial DNA. The uh, the problem is is that when that doesn't happen. Uh, as I mentioned, things um, uh, are damaged beyond repair and problems start to happen. But um, the newer research is showing that we do have uh, better repair mechanisms in the mitochondria than we previously previously thought. So that's uh, that's encouraging.
And you have a really great, well, pair of of analogies or stories about what goes on in the mitochondria that explains how it is that these electrons can leak out of the transport system. Um, and, and so I want you to tell those stories. One is about the input, like if you're eating too much, if you're getting too much fuel, too many electrons coming in, and then um, the role of exercise in regulating the output. Right. So this is, and this is really cool because this is, um, when we look at the mitochondria and how it works, we can often take a lot of the things that we hear about in, in the news and in, in research and put them into context and try to understand why that's happening. So we've heard of many situations where uh, overeating or excessive calorie consumption uh, can increase the risk of ulcers of different degenerative diseases. Um, and at the root of, of that lies mitochondrial dysfunction. And the way that works is that when we overconsume food, essentially all, all that food, all, that, all those calories uh, break down into electrons. And as we have a rush of electrons entering the mitochondria and the, the electron transport chain, if the electron transport chain is not operating efficiently or we don't have enough to handle all those electrons, those electrons have to go somewhere. And they unfortunately uh, will spill out as free radicals. And that is, uh, again, the, the connection between overconsumption of calories to degenerative disease. On the other side, as you mentioned, is um, a lack of physical activity or being sedentary. And we've, again, heard many different uh, research studies that link a sedentary lifestyle to pretty much all degenerative diseases. And again, when you look at the level of the mitochondria, at the root of this, um, th this problem lies the fact that when we generate uh, ATP uh, or the energy molecule, um, but we don't use it, what we're essentially doing it, uh, to make a, uh, to simplify it or to make a long story short, we're essentially backing up the electron transport chain. There's a traffic jam, so to speak, but that doesn't mean that we're stopping the flow of electrons. The electrons will continue to want to enter the electron transport chain. So, um, but if there's a traffic jam, again, those free, uh, free radicals are going to be generated, leading to a mitochondrial dysfunction. So again, and, and um, I, I explain this, I think, uh, probably a lot better in my book, but uh, it kind of gives you an indication or uh, an overview as to why these different things that we hear about in the research studies or in the news do result in those health conditions that we often hear about. So then you go on in your book with an entire chapter on these various different health conditions and how they can be generated specifically. And I'll just leave that section to the interested readers. But I want to hear you talk about some of the interventions that have come online recently to help the mitochondria function optimally and either um, prevent or ameliorate some of those health conditions. Right. Okay. So this is, uh, and this is one of the things uh, I, I particularly like to talk about because it, even though it's known now that mitochondrial dysfunction is at the root of many degenerative diseases, the question that everyone has is what can we do about that? Uh, and fortunately, we do have tools in, in our, our biological toolbox that allow us to optimize the function of mitochondria. And if I had to say, uh, send everyone home with one message, it would be physical activity. Um, it continues to be the best way to improve the function of mitochondria. And I know it's probably not something everyone wants to hear. They want, it, they want that, that magic bullet, so to speak. Uh, but it is incredibly important to you to get up and moving. And that's because 
it addresses that one side of the coin that we just talked about is uh, getting our bodies using the energy that our bodies produce so that we can minimize free radicals. And there's a lot of other benefits to physical activity, including something called mitochondrial biogenesis, which means we're creating more mitochondria. So any workload is now split amongst a greater number of mitochondria. So each mitochondria itself is under less stress. Um, but then uh, in exercise, there's a lot of other signaling molecules that are generated that optimize our, our gene function. So it turns on protective genes and turns off uh, damaging genes. And it's cheap um, and there's relatively few side effects. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, I mean, unless you're, you're in a very compromised uh, health right. uh, position. Right. Uh, for, for, for most people, it's something that's free easy to do, and like you said, um, very safe. Right, um, right. And, and so, Lee, do you personally take some of the supplements that you describe in your book, like CoQ10 or Ubiquinol? Yes, I, I, I do, yeah. So CoQ10, uh, and more specifically Ubiquinol, is the uh, probably the one uh, mitochondrial nutrient that I, uh, most people think about when they think about optimizing uh, mitochondrial function from a dietary point of view. And I absolutely take that on a daily basis. Um, one of the other things that I really like, um, and I, another one that I take is D-ribose. Um, and D-ribose is another one that's gaining a lot of popularity, typically thought of as, uh, as an athletic uh, improvement type supplement. But now we're seeing that there is an incredible benefit to, to cardiovascular patients, to chronic fatigue syndrome uh, patients, uh, and just general um, uh, the general population and improving the energy-making process in, in, in the cell. Magnesium is another one I take and incredibly important. And unfortunately, the vast majority of the population is deficient or not getting uh, enough magnesium. And magnesium is involved as a cool factor in, in many different reactions that are involved in the energy-making process. But the, the, the thing is, is that ATP, that energy molecule, uh, even though we, we often start mention ATP is actually magnesium ATP. It's magne Each ATP molecule is stabilized by an ion of magnesium. So it's, uh, magnesium is probably one of the under, most underrated minerals uh, out there that I think a lot of people should be supplementing with. So, um, and, and there's B, B vitamins, uh, and, and I have a, a number of other ones that I, I take personally, as well as I mentioned in my book, that will optimize mitochondrial function. And another great aspect of the book is that you talk about the supplements, but then you tie them back into A, mitochondrial function, and B, specific function in some of these diseases. So, you know, with an aging population, I think there's so much great information in your book in terms of how to get back to optimal function and also just a general appreciation for these little structures that are so widespread. Oh, and one of the fascinating things that was in your book was just how many mitochondria we have. Like, I had no idea there's pounds of mitochondria in the body. Yeah, I think uh, I think I, I mentioned up to ten percent of our body weight is, is mitochondria, um, which is which is incredible. Um, and when you consider that, you know, these these are structures that are so small that even with powerful microscopes, we can, you know, often not even see them clearly. So, really, really cool stuff. Right, right. Well, we'll have to leave it there, but we will post a link to your book on the website. And good luck with your book and with your clinical practice. Thank you, and thank you for having me again. Yeah, thanks so much. That was Dr. Lino discussing his recent book, Mitochondria and the Future of Medicine, and we will have a link to that on the How on Earth website. 
So remember, those mitochondria are vital cellular structures that contribute to both health and disease. Recent research is revealing novel ways for optimizing their function. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by me, Beth Bennett, and engineered by Maeve Conran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler and additional music from Journey. You can visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and links to our material. And you can also subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.